Nigel's going to bring us a passage from Mark 12, verses 13 to 17, in a couple of moments. But uh, let's read those words from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. God's word reads to us, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to, to Jesus to catch him out in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So reads God's word. Can I underscore two things just before we kick off? And that is uh, the 18th of June. Once again, if you are interested in this four-week uh, marriage course, 7.30 on Sunday evenings, please come along and please sign up. There's a form outside. Um, no expense has been spared. It's black and white. Please sign up saying, yeah, I'm going to come. Um, and then come. Depending on how many people sign up in the next 10 days, depends on whether we meet in our home or whether we have to hire a space. Please give me the problem of hiring space, it would be great if many people can come. Because it's 7.30, why not, um, if you are past that stage, or if you don't have responsibilities of children, if you're not married yet, or um, why not release a couple and go and babysit for them? That would be a great blessing to them and to us. And uh, just to underscore one more thing, and that is Tuesday night's really important. If you can come, if you want to come, come. If you're a Christian, if you want to be part of our church family, um, and you're not sure what on earth is going on, um, come and see me at the end. I want to look at this chapter because the election. I want to look at this passage because we're going to take a break from 1 John that we're working through. And I want us to pause, as Martin read, uh, in Mark chapter 12. In Mark 12, they didn't know that we were going to have a, a vote on Thursday. Uh, they didn't know that we were going to have only eight weeks to decide. They didn't know that we were going to have 15 million pounds or thereabouts per party spent throughout these eight weeks to get the right amount of airtime, to get the right color literature and the right doors, to get the right makeup and the right tie being worn, to get the right tour bus or election bus prepared. There's been all sorts going on in the election, has there not? There's been a few uh, train wreck interviews, not mentioning anybody by name on the radio, or a few eggs being thrown literally on the hustings in Middle England. I won't mention who that is. There's been an awful lot of promises made by politicians of whatever party you choose to support, or if you sit on the fence, promises made. Promises need to be paid for. That's a big um, issue that needs to be addressed as well. But there's been a lot going on in the last seven weeks, and it's nearly time to tick or cross whatever we're asked to do and fold and put it in the right ballot box and, and make a choice. 
Manifestos have been launched and then quickly kind of put back in the bottom shelf and the bottom drawer. It's very confusing sometimes to know as a Christian who to vote for, to know who to vote for if you're not a Christian. But in looking at the politics of Jesus, how Jesus deals with politicians, I am in no way going to tell you how to vote. I don't think that's appropriate. Some people say that uh, Christians and politics and Jesus and politics is a bit like balsamic uh, vinegar and oil. They just don't mix unless you give them a good old swirl. Some people say they should never meet. They should be like east and west or north and south. If you're a Christian in America, then you vote from one side and you don't speak to the other, red or blue or blue and red. But I want us to think biblically, whether you're a Christian here this morning or not, what has Jesus got to teach us about how to respect and deal with and understand the issue of politics? Very important as we approach election day on Thursday. What's going on here in verses 13 through 17? It's on your service sheet on page 3. It's a bit like question time. It's a bit like a TV debate where the powers of the day are coming to Jesus and they want to see if he's blowing smoke or not. They want to see if he's going to be pinned down to the mat or not, just with a carefully worded question. It's not about taxes, it's not about trident. Well, it's kind of about taxes, but less said about trident, the better. And in verse 13, here they come. You've got two theological groups that hate each other's guts. You've got the Herodians and you've got the Pharisees. The the Herodians, they're pro-Rome. You've got the Pharisees, they're pro, not Europe, they're pro-Jew. They hate the Romans, but they come together because they want to put Jesus on the mat. They want to put egg on his face, they want to embarrass him, and so they set up this scenario that they think there's no way Jesus can get out of. And it begins in verse 13. And really they're saying this, Jesus, tell us about your politics. Who are you going to vote for? Are you red, are you blue, are you yellow, are you purple? if they still exist. Are you green? Are you independent? Jesus, who do you vote for? What are your politics? And so out they come with the big question that they're going to put Jesus on the mat with. And it's a revolutionary question. Let's think about that. This revolutionary question. In Roman times, it's just like our time, there is taxes everywhere. There is a land tax. There is a political uh, taxation to the max. As much as you could, the Romans would tax you to pay for the war machine, to pay for roads, to pay for sewers, to pay for baths in Rome and in Bath, and so on. And so, just like then, as in now, there is taxation everywhere. Big tax burden. But one taxation that we need to understand to understand this passage is the head tax. The head tax. About 25 years before Jesus was walking the streets of Jerusalem, Rome introduced a head tax. They said, just for the privilege of everybody who is now treated as a Roman citizen or you're under Roman rule, we will charge you one denarius. That's a day's wages every single year, just for the privilege of being under our care, whether you like it or not. We'll charge you a denarius. 25 years earlier, this tax was brought into being, and there was an uprising. There was a man called Judas, the Galilean, and he said, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm going to revolt. I charge everybody who will follow me to uprise, to not pay the head tax, to not pay a denarius a year to Rome. We shouldn't have to pay this. We're not going to pay it. Don't pay it. And so he tried to garner some civil unrest. 
He did a second thing. He went into Jerusalem and he cleansed the temple. He got rid of money changers and animal sellers. He cleansed the temple. And the Romans were spitting teeth and spitting blood and steam was coming out of their ears like Tom and Jerry cartoons because they wanted to put down this revolt. And that's just what they did. You see, Judas the Galilean, who said, don't pay the tax, who cleansed the temple, who said, Rome, you're not in charge of us. He was found out. He was pursued. He was captured. And he was arrested in a very bloody and gruesome way. Judas the Galilean, he wanted to cleanse the temple, and he did. He wanted to stop paying tax, and he did. And he wanted to bring in the kingdom of God. But he couldn't do that because he wasn't Jesus. But 25 years later on, Jesus is asked a question. What do you think we should do, Jesus? Do you think we should pay taxes or not? Looking at this few sentences, you might think, really, it's just a question about tax. But when you understand that 25 years earlier, there was a man called Judas the Galilean. And there was a man who said that he would bring in the kingdom of God. And there was a man who went in and cleansed the temple, just like Jesus has done, just a chapter earlier in Mark 11. This few sentences gets a lot more weighty. It gets a lot more significant. It gets a lot more revolutionary. Because in chapter 11, it's just, we've just been told that Jesus has thrown out people who are treating his temple in a way they shouldn't be. Right from the first sermon in Luke chapter 4, you can read that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. Jesus takes a passage from the Old Testament from a man called Isaiah, who was a prophet, and he takes his words and he says, actually, that's just what I've come to do. Jesus says in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me, God is on me, and I've come to preach the gospel to poor people, to preach deliverance of people who are captives, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is coming and he's saying, I'm coming and it's revolutionary. It's not political, but I've come to bring a revolution for the poor. I've come to bring liberation for those who are oppressed. I've come to bring justice. I've come to bring in the kingdom of God. Sounds just like Judas the Galilean, doesn't it? And so verse 15, Jesus is asked a question. Jesus, not just what do you think about paying taxes, what do you think about the head tax? Jesus is about to be put on the mat, or so it seems. Jesus could answer A in the red corner. Yes, pay the tax. And then he looks like he's just kowtowing to the Romans. He could say no, couldn't he? And then he'll be unpopular with the other group. But when you understand what Jesus is saying in light of Judas the Galilean 25 years earlier, what's really behind the question is Jesus... Jesus, have you come to bring revolution? Have you come to overthrow the ruling party? Jesus, you've done just what Judas did 25 years earlier. Are you a revolutionary or not, Jesus? It's a revolutionary question. That's where these sentences begin. But secondarily, there's a revolutionary answer. Revolutionary question, but then there's a revolutionary answer. I'm not a fan of politics. That's why I watch The West Wing. But one thing you notice when politicians get put on TV, they do struggle to answer the question. I mean, I'm sort of a simple kind of guy. I bought a new watch. I'm wearing it today. It cost me 12 pounds. Very expensive. My father-in-law cannot understand it. It took me two weeks to research. But it's, it's 12 pounds, and I wanted a cheap watch. 
I'm a simple kind of guy. I like driving Volvos. I like cream teas. I like bread and cheese every Saturday lunchtime. It's just who I am. I would wish politicians sometimes would just answer with a straight bat, would you not? It's infuriating. They get asked a question, you choose the media, it can be social media, it can be TV, it can be radio, but then somehow they manage to wiggle out of it. Oh, what you're really asking me is not, no, it's not, I want you to answer my question. And depending whether it's Jeremy Dimbleby, or Jeremy Paxman, anyone called Jeremy, even women called Jeremy, whoever it is who's asking the question, they always seem to get out of it. And it's infuriating. Big promises are made by politicians, but then they never kind of give you the cash value until they're in power. And then things seem to get changed or altered. It can be about anything you want. You end up getting hot under the collar. You end up just thinking you're just speaking hot air and I'm not even going to vote for anybody. You become disillusioned. Jesus has just been asked a revolutionary question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And underneath there, are you bringing revolution or not? Are you going to overthrow the government or not? Are you kind of a Guy Fawkes in disguise? But the first thing I want us to see is that Jesus rejects a simple, a simple answer. It's not as easy as a yes or a no. It's not as easy as a yes or a no. Look at verse 14. Notice how they rephrase the question twice in one sentence. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Question number one. Should we pay or shouldn't we? Just give us a yes or no, Jesus. I just want to know a yes or no. And so what does Jesus ask for? Verse 15, he avoids a simplistic answer. It's far more nuanced than that. You're not going to put me on the mat. I'm not blowing smoke. You're not going to catch me out. But I will answer you, says Jesus, because I'm not a politician. What I need is a denarius, verse 15. And then I'm going to ask you a question, verse 16. Whose image is on it? And whose inscription is on it? Jesus knows already. He didn't have any in his pockets because he was so poor. But on every single coin, there would be this inscription. There would be the image of Tiberius Caesar, the emperor. And there would be an inscription, and it would say this. Tiberius Caesar, son of God, Augustus, pontifex, Maximus, high priest. In English, that means, on this coin, Tiberius Caesar says that he is king. He says that he is a son of God, and he says he is high priest. All those statements are made on every single denarius and every single pocket in the Roman uh, Empire. Whose image, whose, the word is literally icon, it's very interesting. Whose icon is on the coin? Verse 16. Then he says, look, it's completely appropriate for you to give to Caesar everything that is Caesar's. It's literally his money. He owns it. He owns the mint. The silver that was used to form the coin is his. So give to him what belongs to him already, says Jesus. Give everything to Caesar that has his icon, his image, ingrained on it. No civil unrest. No usurping of the civic authorities. Don't do that. Don't revolt in a way that was encouraged 25 years before. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, because it's his image and it's his silver and it's his property. It's his icon. Anything with his image on it, give to him. But, but give to God whatever has his image on it, says Jesus. 
And at that point, there's no kind of hot under the colonists from those listeners. They're amazed at his answers. Did you notice that? They marveled at him, verse 17. When I listen to politicians, I get disillusioned. I get fed up. I get frustrated. Just answer the question. But Jesus, who's asked a revolutionary question and gives a revolutionary answer, his here is marvel at his wisdom. He's not gotten out of it, but he's answered a different question. And what Jesus is doing here is something absolutely remarkable in the history of the world. You, you may not be into political theory, but stay with me. Jesus is saying something revolutionary in his answer. He's saying this, there is a limited nature to government. There's a limited authority to government. They are to have authority, but it's limited. It's far smaller and more guarded than they think. Up until this point in the history of the world, every government thought they had divine authority. They thought they had supreme rule. Every government thought that. Every king thought that they are from God as well. They might have think they were gods themselves. So they thought, we have absolute totalitarian authority. You must do what we say as government. You must do what we say as king. And Jesus comes with a torpedo and says, that's a torpedo on your shoulder, by the way. He comes with a torpedo and says, no. You have authority, but it's far smaller than you think. And if it's far smaller than you think, what you've got to realize, government and king, Tiberius Caesar, are you listening to me? Those around me, are you listening to me? You have authority, but there is one beyond you who has far greater authority, supreme authority, supreme control, and his name is God Almighty. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. It belongs to him, but... Everything that has God's imprint on it, well, that belongs to God, says Jesus. You have authority, governing powers. You have authority, kings. You have authority, Roman emperor. But remember who you are and remember who you are not. Verse 17, give to Caesar the things that belong to him. But, here's the catch, give to God the things that are God's. There's an authority over Caesar there's an authority and there's a kingdom that's coming. And Jesus is saying, I'm not like Judas the Galilean 25 years before, but I am bringing in a kingdom. I am bringing in the kingdom of God, but not the way you think. Not by earthly means, not with earthly structures. And that's the reason why everybody's marveled at his answers, verse 17. They're dumbfounded. What kind of revolution are you bringing, Jesus? Well, give me that coin, verse 15. Bring me that denarius. Let's simplify this. Here is Jesus, who is so poor, he has to ask for a coin, a day's wages. His pockets are empty. His bank balance is zero. There are two players on the stage. One is Tiberius Caesar. He owns so much silver, so much resources. He's not just a billionaire. All the coins are literally minted out of his wealth. He has more money than you can imagine. And then there's Jesus, who doesn't have a penny in his pocket. Both people say, I am king. Both people, Jesus and Tiberius Caesar, say, I am the son of God. Both people say, I am the high priest. But look at how utterly different they are. One lives in a palace, one has got nowhere to lay his head. One king has all the coins in the world, and one hasn't got a penny to his name. Two players on stage, Jesus and Tiberius Caesar. So what sort of king is Jesus going to be? 
If he says he's going to bring in a kingdom, he's going to be not a king like Tiberius Caesar, not a tyrant. He's going to be a different kind of king altogether. He's going to be a revolutionary king. He's going to be a king with a different concept of revolution. There is going to be revolution, says Jesus. The temple will be cleansed. I've just done it, Mark 11. But not in the way you think. Put your swords away. Put your armor down. Pay money to Tiberius Caesar because it belongs to him. But, revolutionary answer to a revolutionary question. Give to God what belongs to God. And that's you. Because we all bear his image. It's a revolutionary question. It's a revolutionary answer. And because I couldn't think of a better title. Thirdly, a revolutionary revolution. (laughs) In Luke 6, you read some famous words from Jesus. just want you to pin your ears back. Blessed are those who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you. Leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Did you notice twice in this little passage, it's called the Beatitudes, part of it, that Jesus takes four values that are very common to people living in London and Epsom and Yule, very common to you. He repeats them about people who don't enjoy them now and people who will enjoy them then. He says there are two kingdoms marked by four values. Here they are, the value of power, the value of success, comfort, and recognition. Power, success, comfort, and recognition. Those two uh, dividing lines of two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God, the people living in Epsom and Yule, your neighbours who don't know Jesus and people who do know Jesus, they will approach those four values in two completely different ways. If you're in the kingdom of this world, if you don't know Jesus, if you're not yet a Christian, you will be wanting those four values now. You will be wanting power in some small way. You may not want to be a politician voted for on Thursday, but you will want power, maybe at work, maybe in a a work environment, maybe in the home. You want more respect and more recognition. We all want comfort, and we certainly all want success. These four values define the kingdom of the world. You have to have those to succeed in the kingdom of this world. And then if you want those things, then all of your life's directions... All of your priorities, all of your ambitions will be shaping you to get you those four things. Comfort, recognition, power, success. But Jesus comes into the world, preaches his first sermon about the kingdom of God. And he says, this is the revolutionary revolution that I'm going to bring. I'm going to take all those values and I'm going to turn them on their head. So if you're wealthy in the eyes of the world, one day you will be poor. But if you're poor and you love and know me, one day you'll be wealthy. If you're thought very lowly of now, but you know me, in the future, everyone will know your name. I'm concerned for the poor. I'm concerned for the lowly. I'm concerned for the marginalized. I'm concerned for the single parent families. I'm concerned for those who are possessed by people. I'm concerned for those without enough resources. 
I'm concerned for those who don't know what justice is because they can't afford it. I'm concerned for those people, and those are the people that Jesus rubbed shoulders with when he was on earth. He wasn't with religious people. He had hard words to say for religious people. He was with the lowly and the down and outs. How about us? Who do we find it easier to mix with? And here's Jesus saying, I'm going to give you a real revolution. Anyone can organize a little rabble to overthrow the government if you really wanted to. There can be lone wolf attacks. There can be coordinated attacks. But I'm offering you a real revolution. I'm making promises about the future, but I never fail in my promises. And my name is Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God has this upside-down view of power, success, of comfort, and of recognition. It's not about now. It's nearly all about then. It's about the future. It's living in the present in light of the future promises that Jesus Christ has already made. Jesus is saying, look at me. I haven't got a penny in my pocket. I haven't got a denarius. I've had to borrow. But let me tell you, I am more of a king and a different type of king than Tiberius Caesar who lives in a palace who's got all the silver and gold. I'm a different sort of king. It's very easy for politicians, isn't it, to make promises regardless of the colour rosette that they wear. The thing is about making promises is easy. The trouble is that if you do get elected, then you've got to, you've got to cash in those promises. So the, the, peak, the, the peak of the political career is when you get elected. But the peak of Jesus' career was not when he got elected. The climax of Jesus' career, as it were, the, 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 the high point of it was when he got executed, not when Jesus Christ got elected. That's the climax of his kingship. That's the pinnacle of his career, when Jesus showed what power is when Jesus put comfort to one side, when he shunned recognition, when he was beaten so badly that no one knew who he was. That's the pinnacle of the life of Jesus, a different type of revolution. Friends, one of the signs that you know Jesus, you know this king, not a king of the world, but King Jesus, is that you have a different approach to those four earthly values, those four priorities. They don't shape you or define you anymore. Your life is not bound to what is most comfortable to you. Comfort does not define where you live. Success does not shape you so that if you lose it, if it's taken away from you, or if you're given it, it does not shape you. Recognition is no longer what really drives you. It doesn't matter if you're known or an unknown. And power you treat with respect. Why? Because everything is not about you anymore. It's about living for the king. It's a priority of other-centeredness, just as Jesus' ministry was shaped by other-centeredness. He didn't come for the rich, he came for the poor. He didn't come for the high, he came for the lowly. He didn't come for the kings, he didn't live in a palace, he came to a stable. So all the decisions that you make should be about what benefits other people. It's others first, not you. And you think, okay, that all sounds very hippie. Perhaps a bit uh, red book and a bit communism. Is Jesus really just a communist in disguise? No, he's not. Who in the world can live like that? Here's how you can live like that. Here's how you can live for other people when the me monster keeps coming up the top of your shirt every single day. When you say, I want to live for myself. I want a bit more comfort. I want a better car, house, holiday, gym membership, computer, whatever. Sometimes it's right to upgrade. But it doesn't define us. And here's how you can live other-centered life, and this is a real revolution, says Jesus. 
you've got to understand why Jesus doesn't have a coin. Why does Jesus not have a coin? If you understand that, there is the power to live a revolutionary, revolution life. Why does Jesus not have a coin? Because Jesus, who owns every single coin in the whole universe, gave it all away. Jesus, why is he poor? Why is he rejected? Is he just trying to make a political statement? No. He became a king without a penny for your sake and my sake. This is the gospel in a nutshell. If you're not yet a Christian, listen in. If you're a Christian, listen in. Jesus Christ took the poverty that we deserve. He took it that we deserve so that we could have the incredible wealth that is his. Not now, but in the future then. When you see Jesus Christ as this uh, unearthly definition of king, when you see him being without a penny for your sake so that he has to ask for a denarius, hasn't even got a day's wages to his name, when you see him rejecting riches and accepting poverty, when you see him putting aside uh, his name's sake and his name's worth and accepting and embracing um, shame and scorn, when you see him being beaten up for you, when you see how love is defined at the cross, there is the power for you to live another centered life. You can look at great wealth and you can hold it if it's yours very loosely. We want wealthy Christians who know how to steward money and resources generously and well. It's not Christian communism. But they're not the main things anymore because you're not in the kingdom of the world. You don't live for recognition and power and success and comfort. You look at Jesus Christ who took all of those values and turned them on their head. And it's all because of the cross. Jesus Christ's great wealth was laid aside and he became poor for you. There's a man called Tom Skinner, he was a black American pastor, and he gave a really powerful sermon at a missions conference in 1970. He knew a lot because of the color of his skin. He knew what it was like to live a marginalized lifestyle. He wasn't respected or honored. He had a very difficult upbringing. But he was a pastor in America, and he was thinking about these two people at the end of the life of Jesus. There was Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. He said, I'm going to overthrow the government. I'm going to, as it were, put a suicide kind of uh, device to my chest. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get rid of the ruling Romans. I'm going to cause an uprising. But then there was Jesus, who caused a revolutionary revolution in a very different way. The people who were in power thought, we know how to stop Barabbas, says Tom Skinner. You can always stop someone like Barabbas. The most Barabbas will do is to go out, round up another bunch of guerrillas, and start another riot. That's what Barabbas will do. You will always stop him by bringing out the army or the police and putting the riot down. There will always be people like Barabbas. You find out where he's keeping his guns and his ammunition, you raid his apartment, raid his flat, you go for a search warrant, and you can shoot him while he's asleep. And no one will ever hear of him again. That's how you deal with someone like Barabbas. He wants to cause an uprising like Judas the Galilean. But how do you stop Jesus? Asked Tom Skinner. How do you stop someone like Jesus, who they took and they nailed him to a cross, who they took and buried, and they rolled a huge stone that weighed tons and tons over his grave, and they wiped their hands, and they said, this one, this radical, will never disturb us again. We've stopped him. But then three days later, says Tom, 
Jesus Christ pulled off one of the greatest political coups of all time. He got up out of the grave, the leader, not of a new political party, but of a new creation. A Christ who has come to overthrow the existing order and establish a new order that's not built on man. To put Barabbas to death, you just need to kill him. That ends his revolution. But to put Jesus to death, that he launches his revolution. To take away power from Barabbas ends his revolution. But to take away power from Jesus launches it. Friends, I'm not going to tell you how to vote on Thursday. But Jesus Christ was not put on the map by a very difficult question. He answered it. And he says, respect your civil authorities. Come to a settled conviction about who you will vote for, who's most aligned with your values. It's freedom and a responsibility to vote whom, you've, who, whom you will for. Give to the government what is the government's. But this passage also tells us to give to God what is God's. And that's where the challenge lies for us. They thought they could end Jesus' revolution, but they just gave it more fuel to the fire. Jesus Christ paid back what you deserve. Put it that way. But now we need to pay him what he deserves, which is our life and our all. Why don't you join his revolution, not on Thursday. Why don't you join it even today?